Hey everybody, this is Kendall from Recording Lounge. It is Saturday, November 27th, 2010, and this is the Recording Lounge. Welcome to the show. Today we've got a lot of good things to talk about, but before we get into the main topic of the show, I actually want to talk a little bit about some news in the audio realm. Two biggest things in my world, at least right now, are the release of Pro Tools 9 as well as the release of native for Windows uh, DUI or DUI plugins. Um, let's talk about Pro Tools 9. So if you're not a Pro Tools user, which I know actually a lot of people aren't, I read something recently that said Cubase is actually more popular than Pro Tools worldwide. I actually don't know if that's true or not. Um, so don't quote me on that. I, I don't know. But if it is true, it's really interesting just because you know it's universal. You can use it on anything. It's been around for a long time, you know. Um, and it's not too expensive, really. Cubase, even Cubase Five, with all of these new additions and new plugins, is still only you know five hundred bucks, something like that. Anyway, so Pro Tools Nine. This has been the biggest update in Pro Tools in history, literally in history, because it's the first time you can use any interface with Pro Tools. I called up RSPE and uh, on the day of the release. And was talking to him about it, and they were basically telling me these things. Here's the details that I've learned so far. That if you guys haven't haven't talked to anybody yet, first of all, uh, if you're on a Mac, you have to have Snow Leopard, I believe, or newer. I don't know if there is any newer. I'm not a Mac guy. I don't know if they've come out with anything since then, but it's got to be basically the latest. And uh, I know that for a PC, you have to have Windows Seven. Which is a problem for a lot of people because a lot of people don't have Windows 7 yet. It's pretty new. A lot of people are still using XP or Vista. More people XP just because it's a lot more stable than Vista. Um, but still, you have to have Windows 7. And um, that was a that was a big thing that I learned from Sweetwater actually when I talked to my rep, my rep from Sweetwater. And uh, another big thing about Pro Tools is that you have to have an iLock. It's not an optional thing anymore. You have to have one. And that's because you can have Pro Tools on as many computers as you want. You can you – know, when you buy Pro Tools, you're actually just buying the license. You can download Pro Tools on the website. And as long as you have a license, you can download it to any computer you want. The problem is you won't be able to use it unless your iLock dongle is in the computer. So th- that, that's good and bad in a lot of ways. First of all, it's bad because – it's kind of inconvenient to have an iLock. I, I, it's kind of annoying just to make sure and always have your iLock with you because if you go to a studio that doesn't have Pro Tools and you want to record or mix in Pro Tools, um, you have to have your iLock. And if you forget it at home, you're screwed. However, it is good because you can use it on any computer. You can use it with any interface. You can use it with no interface. You can actually just use the core audio on the computer. You know, just your stock sound card. So that's good because obviously you, I don't suggest mixing or recording with that. But that's good because if you just want to open up a project just to see, you know, just to like mess around with like disk allocation or kind of clean up the project, get rid of unused files. If you're just, you know, sitting around on your laptop and you're like, you know what, I've been, need- I've been needing to go through and rename all the tracks on this session. Um, it's perfect for that. You know, you just stick in some headphones to your laptop. You don't have to have your interface plugged in or anything. Stick in the uh, a USB uh, iLock. Open up the session. Listen to each track. 
you know, and just kind of hear, just kind of hear, okay, that's the guitar, and then you need to rename it or maybe write notes on anything that you might have. But you don't have to mix with that. So when you get home, you've already renamed all your tracks or whatever. You consolidated all the regions you need to. Just simple, quick edits like that that before seemed like such a pain, you can now do with, with great ease. So Pro Tools 9, you got to be careful because it is compatible with your ASIO drivers and it is compatible with – and most native drivers for PC and Windows, PC and Mac. However, still be careful because not all of your plugins will necessarily work. Pro Tools 9 still doesn't have VST support, so don't be so quick to you know get rid of all your plugins when you don't have an RTAS version of the plugin for Pro Tools. That is a downside because for me, since I'm using Nuendo, I have VST plugins. I use a lot of VST plugins and. That's pretty much all I use. Um, so if I, I, I can't use these plugins in Pro Tools really and that is a problem. I do have a few plugins that I've purchased for Pro Tools. I have some of the DUI plugins or Dewey if you like to call it that. And I've got Waves SSL for, uh, for Pro Tools as well. And this is really one of those things that you just – kind of have to deal with. There's not really a way around it. I don't know when Pro Tools or if Pro Tools will ever accept VST. If Pro Tools accepted VST, I probably would switch over to it full-time because I can use whatever interface I want. I can use whatever plugin I want. And that's really, I think, the way they might move sometime. You know, We probably never thought that Pro Tools would ever switch to universal interface support, but they did. And universal audio core support, and they did, and you know all of these things, and they finally did. So I think VST support is just around the corner in the next few years. Speaking of plugins, the next big release in the audio world is not actually released yet, and that is the announcement of Dewey's native plugins for PC. If you've ever listened to the Project Studio Network podcast, you've probably heard Charles Dye talk about these plugins, and I think they're fantastic. Um, I have the Everpack, and I have tape for uh, Pro Tools. I love them in Pro Tools. I think they work great. They're very streamlined, and they sound fantastic. Um, However, the biggest update for them recently is on the 13th of this month, they announced that they would be releasing VST Windows versions of the plugins. They did have native for Mac already, so if you're a Mac user, which many of you are, you know you, pro- you probably already have it for Logic or whatever. But um, I'm a PC guy. Why? Uh, you know, maybe I'll have another show about why I, why I'm on PC. But I have a custom built computer. Works fantastic. It's quad core, ton of RAM, ton of hard drives. It's awesome. Anyway, so the uh, on the website it said they'd be releasing these versions in three or four weeks. So hopefully. That means two or three weeks from now. So I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to hopefully maybe even do a show about some plugins sometime soon. I'd love to do some uh, like some examples of plugins that I really like. Uh, maybe some a show talking about free plugins that I, I know that I get some requests to talk about free plugins that anybody can download that I like that actually sound good and that aren't going to bog down your computer. I mean that that's what we all want, right? That's that's I'm, how, how can you hate that? So anyway, that's what's going on in the audio world at least with me. It's big in my world. 
If you guys prefer me to talk about news before I actually get into the show, like some recent updates that you might not have heard about or whatever, just email me about it and maybe I'll try to start doing that at the beginning of the show and you know, I'd be happy to do some research and uh, let you guys know of what some of the newest things are in the audio world. All right, it's time to get into our topic of today, which is problems in the project studio. And I'm not talking about problems like, oh, it's too loud, my neighbors complain. Not like that. I'm talking about problems like, let's say you're recording and you've got it in your house, right? And you record something in one room and you go to mix it on your monitors and you're just let down. You listen to it back and you're just let down with the way it sounds. You have this whole idea about, you know, dang, um, is it is it my microphones? Is it my room? Is it my preamps? What is it? That's the sort of problem I'm talking about, diagnosing what is causing your sound to not be good. I had a conversation on email with a podcast listener named Chris and he was talking to me about his guitar problems that he's been having. He's He uh, lives in an apartment and he has an ISO cabinet for his guitar. He's got a tube amp and everything he's real proud of. He likes the sound of it and he likes the sound of his amp when it's cranked up. And he even likes the sound of the cabinet when he plugs into it when he crank when he cranks it up. However, when he records it, he just uh, he's just not very pleased. And so, from his brain, he's thinking, okay, so it's either the mic or the preamp or the converters or room room treatment. So there's all of these things, and you're just like, oh my gosh, where do I start? How do I start diagnosing what the problem is in the studio? This is a huge topic. And, uh, you know, I don't have a million years to cover it, but honestly, I probably could. And so please, again, feel free to email me if you guys have any questions about this show. I'll give the email address again at the end. So we'll start today by talking about diagnosing your problems and starting to figure out, okay, so what am I really dealing with here? What do I need to upgrade? Do I need to upgrade at all? Well, a common problem is that many people are using microphones that are actually okay, but because of all the other variables in their chain, their mics don't sound up to their expectations. In fact, they sound bad. Chris, in the previous example that I gave you, uh, he's using an SM57, and in a pro studio world, this is not an uncommon mic. It really isn't. We use it on guitars all the time. We use it up at the studio where I work. We use it on guitars on big projects and small projects alike. It's not... Just this, oh, no, that's $100. Come on, are you serious? That's not a professional mic. It really is. It's um, something fantastic about a 57. Just really sounds great on guitar amps. It sounds really great on snare drums. Sounds really great on toms. Sounds pretty good on voice, too. Um, Now, do we use it on voice often? No, but it's honestly a pretty go-to mic for guitar amps and snare drums. And so, okay, let's mark that off the list. What else do we have? Our converters, our preamps, our room, our source being our amp and our guitar, and then our monitors. Okay, well, I know that Chris has an RME interface, and so that's not a problem. Those are those are pretty good interfaces, I must admit. They really sound good, especially for the money. So that's not the problem. Well, I'm not sure about his monitoring situation, but that definitely could be a problem. A lot of people don't realize that you can have poor monitors in the studio and you think that your sound is bad. Like it actually fools you into thinking that your sound is bad. 
you'll listen back and you know on subpar monitors and you'll hear your guitar tone and you'll think, man, that's so harsh. But in reality, maybe it's your monitors that are harsh. Or maybe you say, man, that's not punchy at all. But perhaps it's your listening volume or your monitor placement even in your room or the lack of room treatment in your mixing room that's leading you to believe that the bass is not tight or that the top end is harsh or that the mid-range is honking. It's very difficult to diagnose these things other than for me to just ask you, have you treated your control room? And if the answer is no, then that honestly could be a problem right there. Treating your control room has nothing to do with putting mopads underneath your monitors. Though that will help, that's not treating the room. That's treating sort of your monitoring space. Treating the room involves putting up base trap panels in the corners and across all the uh, all the barrier surfaces in the room, i.e. ceiling to wall and wall to wall and, you know, if you got the space, floor to wall. Floor to wall. So base traps all over the room and honestly you can't have too many and i'm talking about two foot by four foot by four inch at least four inch thick based base traps broadband absorption that can really help your control room be accurate what you're trying to do is get rid of all the reflections in the room essentially now you're not the good thing about base traps is that they're a lot better sounding than foam since they're broadband they reduce everything very equally and so when you put a ton of them in, it doesn't, it doesn't sound dead necessarily as opposed to just putting in mid and high frequency absorption, which can often leave your room sounding quite dead. However, the uh, broadband absorbers can really do a pretty good job without making it sound terrible. Now, you can put too much and make it sound really dead. And for a control room, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's better than live, I think, for a control room. However... You honestly need if you, if you had to do bare minimum, you know, I would say try to do all the corners that you can, the wall-to-wall corners with base traps, and I would say try to do the space above the mixing desk, um, you know, with maybe three panels from left to right, right above the mixing desk, you know, left above the left monitor in the fr- in the middle, and then above the right monitor, you know what I mean? Just right above the mixing position, and then I would say if you can. Try to do uh, any spots on the wall where you find just a big blank space that the speakers are facing. This is known as an early reflection point where the speakers, you know, just look right across from where your speakers are pointing and see what part of the wall it's facing. And that's probably a point that you need to put mid and high frequency absorption or broadband absorption would be fine too. So. Let's say the control room is taken care of. Let's say the mic is taken care of. The preamps is taken care of even. You know, I think he's using the preamps on the RME, which are not the best, but they're really great, honestly, because they are included. If you're curious what a great preamp is, anything over about $600 a channel is probably pretty dang good. Um, I have a handful of APIs and I have a few UAs. And up at the studio, we have some Neves and we have... Uh, we have some Telefunkins and we have – I mean we've got a lot of stuff and I've used a lot of different types of preamps and I really like a lot of different types of preamps. However, what you got to understand is that good is good and you can't start to get too – a lot of guys get too picky with, oh, is it new? Is it vintage? Sure, the vintage stuff does sound better in a lot of ways but the new stuff sounds pretty dang good too. And uh, there are a lot of top producers that honestly are listening for what's good, not for what's 
new or vintage. You know, they're not they're not only using vintage gear just because they refuse to try new stuff. Some of them actually do try the new stuff, and they don't they don't like it, and that's okay too. That's really okay. Anyway, so let's say all those things are taken care of. Let's say your room is treated. You've got great monitors. You know, uh, you've got good preamps. You've got the fifty seven on the guitar amp, and you've got uh, great conversion and all of this. What's left? Did you even think about the guitar and the amp? Um, you know, we had a whole show about getting good guitar tone. And I think it's really important to note that getting good guitar tone starts with the guitarist and the guitar and the amp. And a lot of guitarists have this sneaking suspicion that their tone is the best ever. They listen to their tone and they're like, you know what? This is the best tone I've ever heard. And I wouldn't call that arrogance. I would call it uh, – I would call it – just natural inclination to assume that your tone is the best for something something about guitars i'm a guitar player i i know exactly what it's like you listen to your tone and you're just like oh my gosh that sounds great however you've got to, you've got to step back and really listen to it compare it to recordings of bands that you really like and really analyze what their tone sounds like now you can't go completely off of that because it's been mixed however you can say, all right, well, you know what? My tone is actually kind of harsh in, from the amp. You know, uh, Another problem is that people listen to their guitar amps from six feet away, seven feet away, and at a bad angle. If you really want to hear what your guitar amp sounds like, put it up on a guitar amp stand and put your ear there. Don't do this for long. I'm not trying to encourage you to make yourself go deaf because you can. You can really hurt yourself. However, you will actually be amazed at how your amp sounds up close because that's where you're putting the microphone. I mean, it is. That's where you're putting the microphone when you uh, put up a 57 right up next to the grill. So if you're actually curious what it sounds like right there, put your head there. Like I said... Don't turn up very loud and be careful, but it's interesting to do every now and then because you'll be able to realize, wow, you know, maybe that's a little bit too dark or maybe that's a little too bright or it's just a culmination of your brain um, always hearing your amp in a room coupled with the fact that you are confident in your own abilities that leads you to believe that your tone is is great because you've been biased this whole time listening to your amp in a room and not your amp because when you put up a mic you're not really micing an amp in a room you're just micing the speaker now you can certainly put like a nice condenser mic out just where your ear is going to be six feet away maybe and six feet tall if you're about six feet tall and uh, that would be probably a decent representation of what you hear. Now, you might get a little bit too much room, and if your room is untreated, it might sound awful. And especially if you're working in a small room, it might just sound terrible. So, you know, maybe not the best decision. However, I advise you to at least try it one time if you're a guitarist and you're trying to li- listen to your tone. Get up close to the amp and play and really listen to it. If that isn't the case, I would suggest checking your guitar rig. First, check your guitar. 
check the pickups in it. Make sure they're the right pickups for the job. A lot of people, again, they're really comfortable with their guitar. They don't like to step out of their boundaries. They don't like to step out of their comfort zone because they're used to their guitar. They love the way it plays. They love the way it looks and all this. Oh, no, I can't believe that my pickups are terrible. Well, truth is, they might be. They really might be. They might be very subpar as compared to the rest of your gear, which is kind of funny. Most people don't think about spending $200 on a set of pickups. They think more about spending $2,000 on new mics and new preamps and all this. The only thing new mics and new preamps will do is accentuate the good sound that is coming out of your guitar amp. And if the sound coming out of your guitar amp is not good sound or it's mediocre sound, the great mics and all that is just going to make it sound a little bit better. However, if you start with a fantastic sound, you'll be amazed at what, a, what an SM57 can do. And for that, I advise a few things. First of all, check your pickups and make sure that they're actually good. You know what I mean? Don't, don't just blindly say, oh, yeah, well, I bought this guitar and it sounds good. That, you know, listen, look at what the pros are using. Um, I really like Fender guitars. I really like Gibson guitars. And I like a bunch of just various – I like Duesenberg guitars. I think there's a lot of fantastic guitars out there. Um, there's really fantastic custom companies. Emerson Custom Guitars is a great company that I'm building a guitar uh, with. Um, and let's see. Warmoth is great. There's, there's just a bunch of companies out there that I really love for guitars. And as far as pickups go – I love Fender pickups. I love Lindy Freeland pickups. I love Lace pickups. There's a lot. There's a bunch of good companies. You know, do your homework. It's not that. It's it's free. You know, there's always great things that are free, and there's not many things that are free that can make your sound as affected as something like this. Another great thing that I su- suggest after you find a great set of pickups to use, and maybe maybe the set you're using is great. I would suggest always recording with new strings and new picks. Again, that's just a few dollars that you can spend. Maybe 10 bucks, 5 bucks for a set of strings and a few dollars for some new picks. It can make a difference because as I've talked about before, you're basically setting up the best case scenario for your guitarist. And we talked about this in the last show on the workflow show. So it's the only other thing I can really say is make – sure you take note of what pedals are being used. If there's no pedals being used, make sure you take note of what distortion is being used. Maybe you need to be using a pedal instead of the amp distortion. A lot of amps, though they'll, they are tube, the, the distortion circuits in them might just be solid state running into clean tube sound. That's not unlikely at all. What that means is essentially inside of your amp is a clean tube amp circuit, let's say. And when you when you click the drive button, it's actually just adding in its own guitar pedal essentially into the circuit and then running that into a clean tube amp. I mean that that's just the truth of it. So, there are a lot of great guitar pedals that I use for distortion in all kinds of genres. My favorite guitar pedals are made by Love Pedal, like the Kalamazoo and the Kanji and a bunch of great pedals by Love Pedal. And I really love pedals made by Exotic. That's X-O-T-I-C. And like the BB preamp. I like the AC. I like the RC, the BB Plus. They make a bunch of great pedals. I like pedals from Zvex. I like pedals from Blackout Effectors. I like pedals from Diamond and Robert Keeley and 
you know, there's a bunch of pedals that you got to use. That this stuff is all important. It really is. It's not just, you know, oh well, I've got good mics and stuff. I should be picking up a good tone. I can almost guarantee you that most of the great guitar tone you've heard has been pure tube amp distortion from fantastic tube amps and fantastic guitars. It's not. A lot of it is not new. You know, all these different pedals in the chain, you know, five different distortions that you're just picking between, you know, and all this. Getting good guitar tone is very simple if you know exactly what you need to get it there. Jimmy Page, who has some great guitar tone, used a Supro Thunderbolt, which is a 1x15 open back combo in a lot of his, in a lot of his recordings. We have one down at the studio and it just, it sounds fantastic. I mean, you crank it up and the distortion on it is just nuts. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And if you want a little bit different tone, you can clean it up, run it a little less hot, and run like a tube screamer through it or uh, you know, an exotic BB or something like that. So take, take note of what you're actually running in the chain. And so, so we've gone through the whole chain of this guitar and really diagnosed what it is. The best way you can do it is just take it one step at a time. And you might ask, well, how do I do that with like preamps or converters? I don't own any better or worse converters or preamps. I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I would advise you doing your homework online, reading books, reading articles, and really figure out what the pros are using. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll have the money or the time or you know the seriousness in your career to buy Neve 1073s or these very very expensive preamps or or converters or or whatever truth is you have to know and you have to come to terms eventually that a lot of the gear that you purchase in the project studio world is subpar and that's why I highly advise people when they when they go to start a recording studio I advise them very carefully to get pieces of gear that not only are appreciable in terms of their worth, but in terms of they're upgradable. For example, you can get some interfaces modded by Black Lion Audio. However, a lot of companies making interfaces that cannot be upgraded. They don't have word clock inputs. They don't have ADAT inputs. They don't have anything like that. A lot of inter interfaces these days are going with digital inputs, you know, like ADAT and What's great about that is you can use something like a 002 rack and you can get it modded by Blackline Audio for you know to, to have a fantastic sounding unit and then you can upgrade later and use a Lynx Aurora running digital into it from the uh, from the ADAT and that's a huge jump from just stock 002. So I would advise really looking into what sort of choices you have as far as expandability on the interface side. In terms of preamps, you know, I would not suggest buying anything that doesn't have a good name. Universal Audio, API, Neve, Great River, Buzz Audio, Purple Audio, La Chapelle. There's a bunch of really, really great things out there. A Designs is getting popular. I mean, there's a bunch of great brands out there that have great names. People are using them. And, you know, it's not necessarily the cheapest stuff in the world but that makes a huge difference especially on things like drums and guitars and vocals a big difference now as far as you know mics you know sm57s on a guitar like i said are not uncommon 
for vocals, we use all kinds of different mics. And for drums, we have all kinds of different mics. I would advise you getting two great condenser microphones. And I'm not talking about like things under $1,000. I'm talking about great condensers. Perhaps something like Perlman TM1 or Telefunken AK47. Easily, you could spend $3,000 on a pair of these, you know, $1,500 each. But you will really thank me for this. You can use them on acoustic. You can use them on overheads. You can use them as room mics. You can use them on guitar amps. You can use them on vocals. If you have a stereo set of amazing condenser mics, tube or FET, whatever, I would advise tube, but whatever, your choice. If you have an amazing pair, you can do wonders. You can really record a lot of things. I wouldn't advise just getting one because then you're just stuck recording in mono. What if you want to do stereo overheads or stereo acoustic guitar, which is very common? So you've got your mics and your preamps and your converters. Monitors. I'd advise getting good monitors. I love Focal monitors. I love Barefoot monitors. I love Atom monitors. Yes, they are very expensive. I'm sorry. I hate it. I really do. I hate it for you. I'm, I'm, I cry tears of joy for all my listeners out there that finally get a pair of good monitors and they hear what I'm talking about when they get like Atom A7s or, uh, or Focal CMS uh, 65s or Solo 6s or something fantastic. Easily you can spend up to thousands of dollars per speaker to get a good set of monitors. Do you have to? No, but I would advise getting a good set of 5-inch or 6-inch or 7-inch or 8-inch if you can afford it um, near fields for your project studio that are, again, that have a good name, something like Focal or Barefoot or Atom or, you know, in that, in that range. And make sure you take note of whether or not their low-end response is good. Some monitors are meant to be used with a sub. You know, you're thinking, oh, man, a 5-inch monitor that sounds great, good name, good company. Oh, what you forget is that they're made to be used with a subwoofer. These uh, Focals that I have are not necessarily made to be used with a sub, but they can be. They have a fantastic low end as it is. Then you have to really, really come to terms with what you're using and what the guitarist is using. I have tons of gear here for guitarists and bassists because I have guitarists that come in that really don't understand how bad or mediocre their tone is. They come in and they say, you know, I've got this guitar and this amp and whatnot, and I put a mic up on it and it just sounds terrible. It just sounds terrible. And it's not my fault because I'll put the I'll put the mic up on another amp, one that I have, or maybe one that they have, they just haven't been using it or the, the, you know, they've been using it for something else, and it'll sound a hundred times better. It's actually pretty unbelievable how many people get gimmicked into uh, this whole idea of, oh, I have to get amazing mics and amazing preamps and all this and my gear will sound amazing. Honestly, it is about in range of importance from the order of the chain. That would be from the musician himself is very important to the guitar, to the amp to the room, to the mic, to the preamp, to the converter, to the monitors. Now, the range of importance is pretty slim. I mean, monitors are very important, as is the guitarist. However, you got to consider that 
no amount of amazing monitors is going to make a guitarist play in tune. No amount of incredible microphones is going to make a distortion on an amp sound less fizzy. If the, if the amp is sounding fizzy in the room, you know, a mic is going to pick that up. So I hope this has helped you see that you have to consider every link in the chain. Every link in the chain is important. It's not just a matter of, okay, what's the problem? Um, okay, it's my microphone. I know it is. It's only an SM57. It's only $100. It's got to be that. Or, man, it must just be me. I'm just a terrible mixer. I can't mix anything. Or it must be my guitar. Man, I've got a terrible guitar. A lot of times people underestimate their gear. And because because it's they don't know how to place the microphones or they don't know how to uh, dial in the correct volume of their amp or they don't – they're not using the right amp. You know, They might have a fantastic guitar and they just never realize how good it can sound. These things take time. Again, I advise you to go listen to the Workflow Show. I talk a lot about this sort of thing and it, it might really help you. So one of these sort of ominous subjects – in the project studio and to me one of the most forgotten yet most important subjects in the project studio is the room people have this idea like oh well i'm close micing an instrument i'm close micing my voice i'm close micing an acoustic guitar guitar amp i'm close micing all the drums other than the overheads the room has very little effect false very very false um the room is not a separate entity. Like it's not like you consider an amp to be its own thing. It's not like that. It's a part of what you hear because you're in the room. It's not like, okay, the room is adding a certain amount of color to the sound because it's a room. No, it's because it's a room that the sound that you're making is bouncing around creating all these reflections and the room is causing all these modes and peaks and nulls and dips and all these things that can affect even the closest mic'd instrument. And that's because sound is very complex and sound is very fast. It moves very quickly around a room and can cause all kinds of problems. So we're going to try to tackle a few of them so that you can try to get your rooms under control. I believe that one of the most important parts of working in a project studio environment, i.e. with small rooms, is the room itself that you're recording. You've got to take note that you are recording an object in a room, not just an object. If you had an anechoic chamber, then perhaps you would be recording just a source. But you don't. And honestly, anechoic chambers do not sound that good in terms of quality of sound because they are completely dead. That's the point of them. So this whole idea is dealing with the sound of a source in a room. And your ears can be biased by themselves. And you'll listen to an acoustic guitar play in a room and you'll think, man, that sounds great. But it's because you've listened to it in that room so long that your ears you, – you begin to think that something does sound great and you begin to think that the vocalist sounds great in the room. But really the room is having a, an effect on you and it's biasing your ears and you're starting to get this whole idea like 
my room sounds great. My room sounds fantastic. I shouldn't have any problems. I mean, look how look how good this vocalist sounds in this room, you know. But the truth is, you your ears almost take out the room of the equation, and you're seeing the per- performer, you're seeing the musician, um, you're seeing them in person, and you can hear them, and you hear the sound that comes out of their mouth, and you can see them singing, or you can see them playing, and you see their fingers move, but you're actually not listening. To you're not listening to real life as if it were a recording, and that's a very odd, like sort of strange <laughs> psychological trick statement. But you have to start listening to real life as if it were recorded, and think to yourself, okay, my ear is right here. This is where the microphone is, right? Put your ear where the microphone would go, and think to yourself, if this were recorded, if this were really recorded, and I was listening to this out of my speakers. Even close your eyes and listen. You know, put your put your ear a, f- a foot or two away from the acoustic guitar player, and and listen to them play and be like, okay, if this was coming out of my speakers, would I like it? And if the answer is no, could be your room, because otherwise you're sitting there and you're recording something. You're saying it sounds great, and then when you listen back to it, and you have to take out six decibels at 500 hertz, or you have to take out. 12 decibels at 250 because there's too much rumble or there's too much honk in the vocal or there's too much of this and that. You know, why is that? I can tell you right now that I work at a studio that has a live room that's about, I don't know, 70 feet by 45 by 31 tall and it sounds fantastic. We record vocals in there, you know. Um, Can you hear a lot of room? Not really. A little bit, yeah, but not really, and that's because the walls are so far apart. You know, it takes a long time for those reflections to get back. It's also a very good sounding room for things like drums and guitars because it's got natural reverb essentially, and the and it sounds just so it's easily excitable. It sounds great, and because the room's so big, sound has a lot of time to dissipate, and it's absorbed and it's uh, diffused. By the time the mic picks the sound up and goes to the computer, you don't have to add a lot of stuff. You don't have to take out a lot of mids. You don't have to take a lot of low mids. You don't have to add highs. It just sounds balanced and real. It sounds in your face. You know, It's up front. And so people will walk into a studio like that and say, oh, yeah, it's the converters they're using. You know, Oh, my gosh, it's the preamps they're using. Holy crap. They don't even take note of the amazing room. They don't even think about it. They're sitting there saying, oh, yeah, it's that $11,000 microphone. Oh, it's that $5,000 Neve 1073. Oh, it's that $30,000 Pro Tools system. But a big part of it is the room. There's a book by Bobby Osinski called The Recording Engineer's Handbook, a very popular book in the audio world. And he divides it up by saying that something like 50% of the sound is the source and the player and the song itself. And 20% of it is the room. And that is 70% of your sound right there. And so you have a good singer, you have a good song, you have good lyrics, and you have a good room. And that's 70% right there of a professional recording. I mean, do you guys understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, is, is that you can get a professional sounding recording in a house that should give you hope. Now, if your recordings to you don't sound professional, then that's exactly why I'm here. That's exactly why this podcast exists. I'm trying to help people make better recordings. That's like my goal. I, I want to help people get better recordings. And so that so that's just it. Bobby Osinski 
on the on the remaining percentages gives like another twenty percent, I think, to Mike placement. Not even Mike choice. That's on there. I think is like the last part of the last ten percent. Like Mike and preamp choice is like the last ten percent, the most insignificant part. Um, obviously, picking the best mics and best preamps are what's going to make the the sound turn great. Obviously, um, and that does make a big difference. But uh, you know, ninety percent of it is. The amp and the sources and the guitar and the room and the singer and the lyrics and all that stuff, that's 50%. 20% is the room and 20% is mic placement, meaning you can handle these things. Well, we obviously could talk about mic placement for years and we obviously have talked about getting good guitar tone using good amps and good quality instruments. So how do we handle the room? That's what we're dealing with today. 20% of your sound. You know, How do we get this amazing sounding room? Well, I can tell you right now. There are a few things you can do to avoid a bad sounding room. First of all, you want to avoid rooms that are cubic, perfectly cubic, meaning 10 by 10 by 10. It's almost impossible to make these sound good. And that's not an overstatement. It is very, very difficult. If you read any books on acoustics, they will tell you that a perfectly cubic room is just do not, do not do it. Now, unfortunately, most rooms in houses are pretty close to cubic. For example, they might be 16 by uh, 12 by 10. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. A lot better than cubic for sure, but still pretty, you know, still pretty small. Unfortunately, a lot of you might even be working in houses with eight-foot ceilings. And I can tell you right now, if you have an eight-foot ceiling and you're trying to do drums in there, you need to treat the entire section above the drums with four-inch panels. And it will make it small and it will make it dead, but it will sound way better than an eight-foot ceiling just with no treatment at all. I will also tell you that a lot of people are working in rooms that have carpet. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's not a good thing. Most of the time, we want a reflective floor. It just sounds good. In almost every studio you'll go into, the floor is going to be wood. It's going to be really nice wood. And it's going to be reflective, and it's going to help kind of still have some reflections. You know, it, It's not just going to be dead. If you have carpet in the room, it's easy that it's going to be dead because carpet absorbs quite a bit of top end and not in necessarily a good way. So... Let's say we're working under an average house condition, right, where you've got a bedroom that you're recording in with, let's say, let's say a nine-foot ceiling, and your walls are, uh, you know, 13 by 15, or let's, let's do 12 by 14. So 12 by 14 by 9 is your room. And I don't want to get into a bunch of technical math and stuff like that, but what I can tell you is I know for a fact you're going to have a ton of low-end problems and you're going to have a ton of mid-range problems. And when I say mid-range, I mainly mean low-mids like in the... 200 to 800 range, not the higher, you know, 800 to 4K range. So how do we take control of these? Well, in a room this small, honestly, it's probably to your benefit to just make it very, very controlled. And I don't mean dead. I mean very controlled. And again, this is almost the same process as um treating a control room in this situation you know you want bass traps that are four inches thick and you want them in the corners as in wall to wall across the corner you know straddling the corner if you would say that and you if you can do it um if you can find a good way to mount them up there and there are plenty of systems online to do this try to do it in the ceiling to wall corners and like I said earlier, you want if you're going to record drums in there, you want to put them over the drum kit and behind the drum kit. 
that's going to make a big difference over the drum kit for sure because the sound is projecting upward. I mean, it's a drum, right? The sound is going upward out of the drum and downward also. Now, I would suggest having a wood floor and I would suggest putting uh, putting a carpet under the drums though because that will kind of help dampen some of the reflections from the underside of the drums. And if you treat above the drums, then um, that's going to help with the reflections coming upward. And treating behind the drum set is going to help a lot with just the overall tonality of the drums because most of the time they are facing a little bit inward. And you also want to make sure that the way the drums are faced and the way the drums are placed is taken into account. For example, uh, you don't want the drums facing a door if you can avoid it. You don't want them facing uh, especially a hollow core door at all. You don't want them facing any of these things because these things can resonate. These things can resonate at mid-range frequencies. You don't necessarily want them in a corner unless it's a super well-treated corner with you know traps on in the corner and then on the wall next to that and the wall next to that all the way up. You know, uh, you want to be very careful. Honestly, the best place for drums that I've usually found is in the center of the room, except a little off to both. You know, the right and back side. For example, let's say our room is 12 by 14 and the drum kit is centered at the, you know, six foot on that, on that side and the seven foot on the opposite side. I would move it to like centered around the four foot and six, four foot and five foot part, um, which would be two feet off of the center in both directions. So just a little bit off center. You don't want it in the center of the room generally. You don't want to record anything in the very center of the room generally. It's just there's all kinds of weird problems because it's the center of every single wall. So sometimes there can be weird cancellations even if it's treated, especially in a room this small. Next, you want to make sure and avoid any sort of like uh, objects that will ring. For example, like you want to avoid having anything metal metallic or maybe like a vase, like glass or ceramic. You want to avoid being close to any of these things. You want to avoid being close to any cabinets. You don't want any furniture that's going to ring or create, you know, weird resonances. You don't want anything because, for example, like if you've got a bookshelf with a back and uh, sides and a top, you know, but it's open in the front, in some way, in some regard, that is going to resonate in the way that blowing across the top of a bottle resonates because the bottle you know, has sides and it's got a bottom and it's got an open face or an open top just as the bookshelf does. It's got back, sides, and top and bottom, but the front of it is open. So will it resonate at a frequency that you can really hear? Maybe not you – know, it's not like you're going to hear a ringing, but it's going to create more problems. And since sound is exponential, every little problem that you can eliminate is going to help. So I suggest putting 4-inch bass traps in the corners or 6-inch if you got them. In the corners, I recommend doing it all the way up and down the walls on the, in the corners from the floor to the ceiling in the corners. Then maybe one on each wall of the ceiling to, ceiling to wall junctions, one on each you know side. And then over the drums, probably three over the drums and you know side by side and then maybe three behind the drums. And honestly, I think that will solve a ton of problems that you wouldn't believe. 
and from there you can put them on the walls. You know, maybe two or three on each wall, not not completely covering the wall, about midway, like two feet up from the ground, so that they're uh, if they're four feet tall, they're stretching from two feet up to six feet. So anybody standing or sitting will probably sound will probably hit them at that point. You know, two feet up from the wall or maybe even three feet or something, and you put two or three on each wall so that they spaced out so that you're not completely absorbing the entire sound. You know, you, you still leave some reflection, but that'll kind of give you a nice balance. Now, as far as guitar amps and things like that, I wouldn't, you don't have to really put a whole bunch of things underneath um, them or behind them or on the sides of them, but you can. You can use them as sort of like a, uh, a movable you, know, you can put you can put some of them kind of in front of the guitar to make sure the guitar amp to make sure that you're not getting any reflections back. You can certainly do that, which is why I would also suggest maybe having two movable bass traps um, that have legs on them, or you can build your own legs if you feel like doing that. I would really suggest doing that. I, I love having those because you can move them around to a vocalist, for example, or you can move them around in front of an acoustic guitar while they're playing and you can put mics on the inside of them obviously so that you don't get reflections into the mics. I think that's a a very nice thing to do because that way it's non-permanent and you can move it around, you can move it for drums, you can move it behind the drums. You know, you can have the the three panels behind the drums um as movable ones. You can put them behind the drums by default if you're doing drums and when you're doing acoustic guitars, you can take two or three around the player or around the guitar amp or whatever or around the vocalist if they're a little too short you know you can put them up on some cinder blocks or on, a, on some chairs or something and you put them above the vocalist or in front of the vocalist where they can sing around them this is movable treatment the good thing about all this stuff is a lot of people don't think about oh my gosh you know i'm gonna have to spend so much money to do this in reality it's not nearly as expensive as buying the gear that would make the same difference you, like I've said, you can't buy a microphone that is going to fix room problems. You just can't. You, it's impossible. They don't make microphones that fix room problems. If they do, please email me because I, I mean, I want them. Um, but they don't. They really don't. They don't make microphones that fix room problems. Let's say you're thinking about buying a thousand dollar microphone, and you think it's going to make a thousand dollars worth of difference. I can guarantee you now, if you've got a bad room, a $1,000 microphone will not make the same difference that $1,000 of treatment, room treatment will do, plus, you know, uh, maybe a $300 microphone. It's just not. It's just not going to be the same. I mean, um, I used to never think that room treatment was that important. I used to think it was just kind of this big, like, oh, you know, it, it helps, you know, it helps to have foam on the walls and all this, egg crates and whatnot. But that's complete hogwash, really. Um, having, having egg crates on the walls and all this is not gonna, is not gonna help. You need broadband absorption, which is rigid fiberglass base traps. If you're looking for some websites to go to, to buy acoustic treatment. I can tell you too that I know and have used personally. I own traps from them and they both are good. Um, if you're looking for uh, pretty cheap and good traps, really high quality stuff, um, you know, regular old materials that everyone else is using, there's a great com- company called Acoustimac, A-C-O-U-S-T-I-M-A-C.com. And they have panels. You can talk to Sal, you can email him or whatever and uh, you just go on the website and order them. But I think their two-inch panels are uh, fifty bucks, and their four-inch panels are seventy. Another great company that, and this is my favorite bass trap. I, again, I don't get paid to do this. I just like these. I just I own them. 
Um, my favorite company for bass traps is a company called GIK Acoustics. I have ordered multiple traps from these guys, and they're just the best that I've ever used. Um, you can get – I think they require you to buy them in sets of two, but you can get two bass traps for I think $140, which means you could get – you could get 12 bass traps for 840 bucks, and that would complete – pretty much completely take care of – most of your low end problems if you're in a how if you're in you know the typical house sized room um if you know what i mean below under 2000 cubic feet or even under 2500 cubic feet um so that would take care of a lot of problems and that would definitely definitely make bigger difference than $840 on a microphone i mean if you're using an $840 microphone in a crappy room I can guarantee you, you're not getting the most out of it. You're just not. You can buy a Neumann, you can buy some of the nicest mics, and if you're in a really crappy small room that just sounds bad, you're cheating yourself. You're cheating yourself big time. Um, so just make the investment. I promise you, you won't be, you won't be upset. And this is because everything affects everything. And because it doesn't matter what preamp you're using or what converter you're using, or what mic you're using, you're still recording that acoustic guitar in a room. You're still recording that vocalist in a room. You're still recording the drum kit in the same room. Rarely do project studios have the ability to record in multiple rooms. And most of the time they're saying, oh yeah, I'm just going to record the vocals in this um, in this uh, coat closet that's been treated with uh, foam and it's going to sound good. And then they get it and it just sounds terrible and dead and just weird. And um, it's because there's no liveliness at all. So try to find a good room with a high ceiling if you've got it. Um, if you've got a really high ceiling, and when I say high ceiling, I mean something like over maybe 14 feet, you probably don't even need to treat the ceiling with panels, with the acoustic panels. But I would still advise doing the corners. All in all, if you have any questions about this stuff, please feel free to email me. Please, I want to help you with your uh, with your problems. You know, if you've got, if you're like, oh man, you know, I've already treated my room and I still can't get it, or man, I haven't treated my room. I'm really not sure how many panels I need to buy. Should I buy four? Should I buy twelve? Should I buy thirty? You know, how big? How big is too big? Do I need to do? What do I need to do? I'm always available for email. It's not annoying to me. You're not going to annoy me or bother me by uh, emailing me. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. The email again is recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com and you can check out the blog at recordinglounge.blogspot.com. Please leave comments. Please uh, you know, let me know that you uh, what let me know what you think about the show. Give me any suggestions you might have and your suggestions might just end up to be a complete show of itself. So I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. I hope you can take that next step into making your recording sound better. I hope that treating your room and, uh, and and trying to diagnose all these various little problems in the studio have helped you understand your flow a little better and understand what do I need to do to upgrade without being, you know, f- uh, without wasting money and being smart with my purchases. So good luck and email me any questions you might have. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Darling, pain's just a feeling I've done, done all I